are listening to the Ron Dunn Podcast. Ron Dunn is a well-known author and was one of the most in-demand preachers during the latter part of the 20th century. He led Bible studies all over the United States, Europe, and South Africa. For more information and resources from Ron Dunn, please visit rondunn.com. The Gospel of John, surprisingly, it's chapter 17. You like the time wearing tonight? Yeah, it is, isn't it? Nice. How many times has it been in the cleaners? A lot. First time I wore it, I got spaghetti on it. <laughs> Went out to eat, I had the coat on. This is a new coat. Took the coat off because I didn't want to get anything on it. And I didn't. Got it on my tie. <laughs> I have a problem with eating. I can't come into contact with food without becoming contaminated by it. <laughs> I'm one of those that you can tell what I had for breakfast or what I'm wearing. I don't know why that is. I just have always, I, you'd think by this age I'd have learned how to eat. But uh, when we eat at home, Kay most makes me eat in dirty clothes. <laughs> and she drapes towels over me and over the floor. Uh, I'm not lying, am I? No. We ride on a plane together, and if they serve drinks, why, if she can't find an empty seat somewhere else, she'll scrunch over as far as she can, you know, and uh, get an airplane blanket and, you know, put in between us and everything, because she knows that sooner or later I'm going to spill something, knock over the Coke, or spill something I'm going to eat. And I don't know, I just, when I finish eating, I, uh, the other night I was somewhere in a meeting, and uh, I uh, got hungry during the night, so about 3 o'clock in the morning I got up and went over and got some uh, ding-dongs. <laughs> and uh, in the morning I had ding-dongs all over my pillowcase and <laughs> all over my sheets. And... It's an embarrassing when you're a grown man and the maid comes in and looks at that chocolate-covered sheet. I don't know what it is, but it happens all the time. I'm so proud of myself when I can eat and not get food on me. I was coming back on one plane trip, and uh, I'd managed to drink Coke and eat the dinner they served. You know, there's not a whole lot of damage you can do with a turkey sandwich. <laughs> and, uh, but I didn't get anything on me, and I was so proud. And so... Uh, uh, sitting there, and the week new, uh, stewardess flight attendant came by and picked up my tray, and I guess she looked at me and said, that boy's too clean, and she dumped that whole tray right on me right there. <laughs> what worries me is that I'm fast approaching the age where you drool naturally. <laughs> and, uh, 
Well, that's trouble with me. I, every time I come, come in contact with food, I be, become contaminated by it some way or another. Of course, I'm that way with the world, too. One of my most difficult problems is living in contact with the world without becoming contaminated by it. Jesus says, I'm not taking them out of the world, I'm leaving them here, and I'm worried about them because I'm afraid that they will not be able to live in contact with the world without being contaminated by it. And that's why he begins to pray for us as he does. So I want you to read with me beginning with verse 11. And now I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, that's the only place in the Scripture where you'll find that particular phrase, Holy Father. The word holy there is kind of an index finger. It points to what we're going to be talking about. Protect them in your name that you have given me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them in your name that you have given me. I guarded them, and not one of them was lost, except the one destined to be lost, so that the Scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and I speak these things in the world, so that they may have my joy made complete in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they do not believe, well, because they do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. And I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but I ask you to protect them from the evil one or from the evil that is in the world. They do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, so that they also may be sanctified in truth. I ask not only on behalf of these, these immediate disciples, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, as you, Father, are in me and I am in you that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, so that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may become completely one, so that the world may know that you have sent and have loved them even as you have loved me. Here, Father, the Lord Jesus prays for the protection of his disciples. And in this prayer, he basically prays several things for them. He prays that they will be protected. He prays that we may be one in that same 11th verse. He prays in verse 13 that our joy may be complete. He prays in verse 17 that we may be sanctified. 
And so the Lord Jesus, as he comes to pray for all of us, his prayer is, Father, protect them in your name, the name that you have given me. Protect them in your name. Now, why is Jesus praying for these things for his disciples? Well, there are several reasons. Number one, because he says he himself is going to be absent from the world. He says in the 11th verse, And now I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Therefore, Holy Father, protect them in your name. Jesus goes on to say that while I was with them, I protected them in your name that you have given me, and I guarded them. Now, he uses two different words here. He says, Father, protect them, which means keep an eye on them, watch over them. And he said, while I was here on earth, I did that same thing. I protected them. I kept an eye on them. I watched over them. But more than that, I guarded them, which is a military term. It's the same word you find in Philippians chapter 4 when he says that the peace of Christ shall build a garrison around your hearts. And it's a military word that means to build a fort around somebody's heart. And so Jesus said, while I was with them in the world, I protected them. I guarded them. And I immediately think of Simon Peter as he goes through that sifting process. And before he ever goes through that sifting process, the Lord Jesus says, uh, <laughs> Peter, but I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. Well, as you follow that story, it does appear that his faith did fail, didn't it? But not so. His love failed and his courage failed, but his faith, while it wavered, it did not finally fail. Fall. Because in the word that Jesus uses there when he says, I pray that your faith may not fail, the tense indicates that your faith may not ultimately, completely, finally fail, you see. I mean, he knew Peter's faith was going to be shaken and shattered, but Jesus had built a garrison around him so that whatever happened to him, his faith would not utterly, completely, and fully, and finally fail. And there are times when you and I in this life meet circumstances and come into periods of adversity when our faith seems to fail. Sometimes we think our faith is failing. We do. We think our faith is failing. But I want to tell you that Jesus has built a garrison around you so that while your faith may appear to fail to others and even to yourself, he has protected you so that your faith will never, never fully and finally fail. No, I do not believe in apostasy. I do not believe that a person who can once come to Jesus Christ in faith can ever renounce Christ. If he does, it means he never knew him in the first place. There is an old saying that says that faith that fizzles at the last was faulty at the first. So Jesus said, while I was with them, Father, I protected them and I guarded them so that no matter what the world and the flesh and the devil threw at them, they would be able to survive. But now I'm leaving, Father, I'm leaving. 
and I'll not be here to watch over them. Of course, we know that the Holy Spirit is going to come to take up residence in us to do for all for us that Jesus would do were he present, but that's not the aspect that Jesus here is considering. Not only do we have that indwelling Holy Spirit, but we also have the Father as he protects us. You see, from the time that Jesus goes to the Father and those 40 days before the Holy Spirit comes, somebody has to take up the job of protecting them. When the Holy Spirit comes, then he will protect them. But in the interim time, those, what was it, 40 or 50 days? Michael, you know that, don't you? I mean, great theologians such as you are. Was it 40 or 50 days uh, after the resurrection that Jesus ascended to heaven? 40 does everybody agree with that? It was 50, wasn't it? It was 50, wasn't it? I, I, I feel 50, I believe it was. Anybody here know their Bible? I, you know, I'm not going to ask Joe because I, I'd rather not know than be humiliated by being taught by a singer. And... Uh, <laughs> But who's going to watch out for them during those 40 to 50 days while Jesus <laughs> is gone and before the Holy Spirit comes? And so the, Jesus says, Father, now you must protect them because I'm not going to be here. I'm not going to be here. You know, Jesus evidently didn't think we could make it on our own. I wonder where he got that idea. And you know what is true? You and I still cannot make it on our own. And so we need the protection of the Father and the protection of Jesus because he's no longer with us. But there's a second reason Jesus prays for all of these things for them and for us. It's because of the antagonism of the world. Because the world hates us. You'll notice he says in verse 14, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. Verse 16, they do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. He says the world hates them. Now, folks, Let's, let's understand something. The world hates true believers. Now, don't let anybody, don't let anything that goes on in society, no matter what lost people may say, no matter how good the world may appear to be and all the nice things they may say about God, do not be deceived in thinking that the world is finally going to embrace Christians. The world hates Christians, true Christians. That's why Jesus says that you better be careful if, if you're loved by all men. If you're accepted by all men, you'd better be careful because as Paul says, all they that will, determinedly will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And the world has not changed one bit. And I tell you the truth, if Jesus were to come back to this world today, they would treat him the same way and finally crucify him on a cross. 
The world hasn't changed one bit, and you need not expect it to because the world is just doing what comes naturally. That's the world. That's the way the world is. And Jesus says, the world hates you. And that's why I sort of become spiritually unglued when I uh, see all of these churches who are trying to win the favor and the pleasure of the world by becoming like the world, you see. Most ridiculous thing I've ever seen in my life. There's a church up north. The pastor was going to start a new church, and so uh, he decided that uh, here's how he would start his new church. He went out and took a poll of all the people in that community, people who didn't go to church, people who weren't saved, just people in that community. He asked them one question. Why don't you come to church? Why do you not go to church? Well, he got about 10 different answers. You can expect what, you can imagine what they would be. I don't go to church because they're always asking for money. I don't go to church because I don't like uh, the music. I don't go to church because the sermon is too long. I don't go to church, you know, for all those reasons. And you know what this guy did? He built his church according to those specifications. Now, let me ask you something. Am I the only one that, 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 that sees the stupidity in that, that a man is allowing a world who hates the church to determine how the church should operate? I mean, you go out into the world and ask a lost person, why don't you go to church? Sure he's going to say, well, you're always asking for money. No, maybe because he's sleeping with his secretary. You say, do you expect them to give you the truth? Why? Well, they're always asking for money. That kind of logic and reason, you'd say, well, I'm never going to a movie again because every time I go, they want my money. <laughs> Have you ever gone to Kroger's and tried to walk out with a sack of groceries? <laughs> That's all they're interested in, the money. And you go down and you want to buy a new car, get a new car, I tell you what, you're not going anywhere without money. I'm never, I'm never again going out and buy a car. I'm not going to the grocery store, not going to the movies. I'm not even going to a doctor. They all want money. That's so stupid. That's so ridiculous. And yet here is a man claiming to be a minister of the gospel of Christ who says that, uh, well, we're going to let them set the agenda for the church. That, oh, I mean, here is a world that hates us. A world that hates us. But we are so, I tell you, I, we, we so pander after the world. We so much want to be liked by the world. We so much want to be accepted by the world that we're going to try to win the world, not by preaching the gospel, but by being like they are. They, uh, I was in somewhere in Georgia. It was here in Georgia, and I can't remember. There were three things this church billboard said. And I wish I could remember them all, but I was so stunned by the last one that I just forgot the first two. They're making promises to unchurched people. He said, the billboard went something like this, said, you don't like to go to church, we don't blame you. But if you'll come to our church, we'll promise you, and they made three promises. I forget what they were. But the third one was this, we promise that we will say nor do nothing that will make you feel uncomfortable. Well, uh, what are you going to preach? And I'm going to preach the Word. Now, you can, you know, we have a lot of therapeutic preaching today, not gospel preaching. You know what therapeutic preaching it is? How to be a better mother, how to be a better father, how to be a better husband, 
10 ways to self-esteem and how to be financial free and all that sort of stuff, which is not what the Bible has taught us to preach at all, just to be honest with you. I was in one of these seeker-friendly churches, which is uh, uh, an oxymoron anyway because lost people don't seek the Lord. The Bible says nobody seeks God. God seeks them. And uh, they're not seeking the Lord. They're seeking a place where they can come and feel religious and not have a guilty conscience. But uh, he, I asked him how this thing worked, and he, he said, well, we, we never say anything that will make anybody here feel uncomfortable. I said, well, what do you do about sin? He just gave me this silly grin, never answered. Folks, the world hates us. And if you think the world is going to be impressed by our trying to be like they are, you're mistaken. Now, I know this much about kids. Now, if I'm wrong, don't tell me because I'm happy in what I believe. <laughs> but I think I know this much about teenagers, kids. I'm 61 years old. I know I don't look at facts as facts. This past summer, I preached to 2,000 teenagers. Teen Mission International in Florida. They had been there two weeks already. This was when you, the burning, all the burning was going on down there. I'd step out of my room. Man, the smoke haze was so thick you couldn't see and you could smell it everywhere. And these 2,000 was actually 1,800 teenagers and then 200 pre-teenagers. They had been camping out for two weeks. I mean, in a tent, individual tent. Uh, they took a bath or shower about once a week. They were hot and sweaty and stinky. And it was called a boot camp. And they went through obstacle courses. They learned how to, to live off of the land. I mean, it was, just like, it was just like a survival course in the Air Force, you know, being crashed and, and, and learning to survive on the land. It was rough. It was tough. I, I, I saw what some of them did. They've been doing that for two weeks without any rain, hot, everything. And on the last two days, they had a missions conference. And they brought me in, 61-year-old man, to speak to 2,000 kids. Now, we all know there's a generation gap and that old people can't relate to young people. Now... I may be deceiving myself, but I didn't have a bit of trouble holding their attention. I didn't have a bit of trouble relating to them. And you know why? It's because I acted like an adult. I didn't try to be like one of them. Now, don't tell me if I'm wrong because I'm happy with what I believe. Teenagers cannot stand it when adults act like teenagers. It's just silly to them. It's just silly to me. I'm not going to wear my baseball hat backwards. <laughs> I'm not going around saying, hey, dude. <laughs> you know. They just laugh at, they laugh at old people who try to act like kids. And I want to tell you something else. 
the world laughs at the church that tries to act like the world. You see? I mean, we don't gain their respect by being like them. They laugh at us. The hostility, the antagonism of the world. The world hates us, and it hates us for two reasons, Jesus said, because he has given us his word. And this Bible is hated by the world. The world hates the word of God. It hates the word of God. I'm sure I've said this to you before, <coughs> but you know, you may have an argument today about abortion or about homosexuality, and they may give you a forum as long as your argument is not based upon Scripture. You know, if you have a psychological reason, a biological reason, a sociological reason, a psychological reason why there ought not to be homosexuality or ought not to be abortion and stuff like that, well, then they'll listen to you. But if you turn to your Bible and says, the Bible says, they're finished with you. They don't, they're not going to hear you. Why? Because they don't accept this book. They hate it. You know why? Because this book is full of absolutes, not relatives. This is the Word of God, and the world hates it. The world hates it. And God has given us this word. And this is the word that you and I are to preach and to share. You say, well, we're not going to win the world that way. Oh, the Bible says that it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching or by the foolishness of what was preached to save them that was lost. I guarantee you're not going to save the world by telling them how to be financial free. You're going to save the world by telling them that they have sinned against God and they'd better flee the wrath to come and the only place to flee for safety is in the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen. Hate the word of God. But they not only hate us because we have the word of God, but they hate us because we're not part of them. We're not. We're not part of them. We're not out of them, the Greek says. I mean, we're not cut out of the same mold. We're not cut out of the same fabric. We just don't fit in. Now, folks, it is this difference that makes us distinctive and gives us our power. And when that difference is blurred, we have abandoned our call as Christians. And what you and I must do above everything else is to make certain that it's plain that we are followers of Jesus Christ. Antagonism of the world. The world hates us. Hates us because we believe this word. See, that's why, that's why uh, uh, liberalism and modernism filtered into the Southern Baptist 60 years ago. You see, most of the uh, revered theologians came from Germany and France. And like Adolf Harnack, who started a great deal of what we call today modernism and liberalism. Ralph Bultmann, some of those others who came along later. They came out of Germany and France. And many of them were not even saved because over there, you choose theology just like you choose law or medicine. And it's not required that you be saved. 
you're a brilliant man and you want to study ancient literature and so you study you take up theology how many of you have ever read William Barclay's daily Bible study daily study Bible whatever I've got the whole thing on my shelf and I refer to it a lot because there's nobody in the world that knows as much about language and the historicity uh, uh, of the times that he does but a friend of his told me he said William Barclay's never been saved and you don't have any trouble believing that when you read his material because anytime he gets close to a miracle he he draws up and he can't tolerate second coming or the virgin birth or anything like that well these were the men that were revered and Southern Baptists just fell off the watermelon wagon had still had hayseed in their ears and we didn't like that and so about 50 years ago we wanted to be academically accepted and so in order to be academically accepted many of our professors back then they had to start adopting the teachings of men like Bultmann and Harnack some of those boys they wanted to be accepted by the world and those men those great esteemed men laugh at you if you interpret the Bible literally they just laugh at you. You mean you're still so corn-fed and ignorant that you still believe that Bible? Well, don't you know now that we have textual criticism and higher criticism, and we've discovered that there were two Isaiahs instead of one, and that Genesis was not written by Moses, and uh, all of that sort of stuff? I mean, we, we have discovered this through our scholarly pursuits, and do you mean to tell me you're still living in the dark ages where you believe all this stuff is in the Bible. And it was our desire to be accepted by the world that first led Southern Baptists to start uh, uh, delving into the liberal theology and eventually adopting it. Well, the world hates us. The world hates us because we have the Word and they hate the Word and because we don't belong to it we don't fit in and they don't like us around that way just like they crucified Jesus because he reminded them too much of his sin of their own sin rather and so here is a true Christian one who lives by his faith and votes by his faith and behaves his faith the world's not going to feel comfortable around him the world's not going to feel comfortable around him and so they won't know part of it. All right, there's a third reason. Jesus is praying for these things and this protection so that the word may advance in the world. That the word may advance in the world. Jesus intended that the word should go forward, and we know that it will because he says in verse 20, I ask not only on behalf of these, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word and so because Jesus wants us to be true to the world living in the world coming in contact with the world but not being contaminated by it so that we might advance the world he prays first of all that we might be one he prays for the unity of the believers 
Let's read again in verse 11. He says, I, Holy Father, protect them in your name that you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. Now, this is evidently very important to Jesus because he says it over and over again. He says uh, in uh, verse uh, 21, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Verse 23, verse 22, the glory that I, uh, you have given me, I have given them so that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me that they may become completely one so that the world may know that you have sent and love them even as you have loved me. Over and over again, Jesus prays for their unity, for our unity. Why? So that the world may believe that Christ was sent by God. And I want to tell you something, folks. A world is not going to be convinced that we are from God if we're always fighting one another. A divided church has no testimony to this world, that we be one. Now, notice the measure, the standard, even as you and I are one. Oh, that's really high. We are to be one even as the Father and the Son are one. And unless we have that unity, there is not going to be a testimony. Now, when he says that we're to be in unity, he does not mean that we're to be all uniform. He doesn't mean that we all have to think alike or believe exactly alike or dress alike or act alike. Not saying that at all. I don't like these branches of uh, Christianity where, you know, you have a strict dress code. Everybody's supposed to dress alike and act alike and have their hair cut just, you know, so or you're not, you know, really one of them. We all need to be uniform. I tr I'm afraid that many of us are not so interested in others becoming like Jesus as we are, and they're becoming like us. What really disturbs us is when people aren't like us. But it doesn't mean that we all have to think the same thing, believe the same thing. I think that your pastor is... Uh, theologically sound. In other words, he believes like I believe. <laughs> but I know, I'm sure there are some things that we disagree on, minor points. That's all right. My mother-in-law is charismatic. She loves God. Uh... I wish she were a Baptist. She wishes I were a charismatic. But uh, you see, the only basis for fellowship is the basis for sonship. That's Jesus Christ. She doesn't have to believe like I believe. I don't have to believe like... When the Bible says that we're to be one, he's not saying that we're all to think alike and dress alike and act alike. He's not saying that at all. 
He's not talking about being uniform, nor is he talking strictly about union. Some people will use these verses as, as a proof text that there ought not to be any denominations. The ecumenical movement really rides high on these statements. We ought to all be one. Uh, you forget what you believe and give up your belief in this so we can all be one. That's not what it means. It doesn't mean union. I mean, you, uh, you can have union and not have unity. I mean, you can take two tomcats and tie their tails together and throw them over a clothesline. You've got union, but you don't have unity. <laughs> and everybody in this church is in union, but you may not be in unity about every little thing. When he says that we'd be one, that we're to be one, what he's saying is that our heart beats as one heart, that our mind thinks as one mind, not thinking alike, but here it is, that we, regardless of how different we are and what we believe and how we feel, yet all of us have the same goal in mind. Our heart beats as one and that is to see Jesus exalted in the earth, you see. That's that unity. That's that unity. And you may not believe exactly as I believe about something, and uh, you might not like the way this church worships or the way this church does that or whatever. That's okay. But when it comes to unity, what he's saying is we need to lay aside our party differences, our petty differences, and we all, we all shoot, we all shoot for the same goal. I remember these uh, World War II stories. Picture shows always love those old World War II stories in black and white, you know. That's real, you know. And, uh, but you remember when they were bombing uh, London? And these German planes come flying over at night in the dark, and suddenly all the searchlights would turn on, and they'd stab through the sky, searching, searching, searching. And when one searchlight spotted a German plane, then all the searchlights focused on that, see, so they could shoot them down. In the same way, you and I need to turn all of our searchlights and focus on one thing, and that is exalting Jesus in the world, you see. We're to be one. Well, he says also that he prays for our joy to be made complete in verse 13. But now I'm coming to you and I speak these things in the world so that they may have my joy made complete in themselves. My joy made complete in themselves. And the word complete means to be completely and continually filled and running over. Because Neither will a, a world will not be convinced by a divided church and a world will not be attracted to a joyless church. And if there's anybody in the world that has a reason to have joy, it ought to be those of us who know Jesus Christ as Savior. And he prays, even in spite of difficulty, even living in a world that hates us, yet in our hearts there is a joy the joy of Jesus in our hearts that is full and complete and that no man can argue against, you see. It's that joy that the world does not have. It's the joy of Jesus. And even when he was going to the cross, he said to his disciples, my joy I leave with you. What joy did you have, Lord? 
I mean, you're facing the cross. He still was filled with joy. It was the joy of doing the will of the Father, you see. And then he prays not only for our unity and prays for our joy, but he also prays for our sanctification. He says in verse 17, Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Now, you know the word sanctify will not take long to get into that. But you know the word sanctify simply means to set apart, to make holy, to set apart and reserve for service and usefulness in the Lord's work. When God sanctified something, he took it out of the ordinary and placed it aside over here, and he said, this is for my special use and it is dedicated to my use and my use only. Now, here's the interesting thing. The moment you come to Jesus Christ and are saved, you are sanctified at that moment. You are a saint because you belong to God. So let's draw a big circle up here and say this circle is sanctification, and we are in it. But what he's praying for is that we'll make progress within that circle, you see. Understand what I'm getting at? That we'll make progress within that circle. And so he sets us apart and dedicates us to this. They're my servants. They're carrying my word into the world. And so, Father, I want you to sanctify them. I want you to make them holier and holier and holier. And I want you to make them dedicated her and dedicated her and dedicated her. And how do you do that? You do that with truth. What is truth? Thy word is truth. It's the preaching of the word, friends, that causes a believer to grow in his sanctification and to grow in his dedication. Oh, I hear a lot of people today uh, who say, well, doctrine divides us. We don't want to go to a church that they're always preaching doctrine. We want to go to a church where there's just love. I mean, you know, just love everywhere. You know what doctrine is? It's a fancy word for truth. And when a person says, I don't want to hear doctrine, he's saying, I don't want to hear truth. And some of the most error-filled churches in our country are churches that are just filled and running over with love for one another. But the word is not preached and the word is not taught. So if I am going to feel upon me the pressure of the Lord to become more holy and to become more committed to what he's called me to do, it will only be as I study this word, only as this word is shed into my heart, as it's taught to me and I learn it and hide it in my heart. And as I do that, then I'll be growing in my sanctification. I'll be growing in my dedication to the Lord. You see. And Jesus says... As you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. They've got the same mission that I had. Therefore, they need to be sanctified. Now, watch this. He says, and for their sakes, I sanctify myself so that they also may be sanctified in truth. Now, what does he mean by that? Is Jesus saying there that before this time he was not sanctified? No. Oh, goodness, no. 
He was the Son of God, the Holy One of Israel. He was already sanctified. But he's talking about taking a step forward in this sanctification. He said, let me phrase it this way. For their sakes, I'm doing this for their sakes, so they can see, so they can know what real sanctification is. I am dedicating myself totally and completely to go to the cross and die so that they will know what real dedication is, so that they will have a standard by which to measure their own commitment and consecration. And I, I am to be just as committed and dedicated to the things God has given to me as Jesus was dedicated to going to the cross, you see. He did that, and he called it, I sanctify myself, I set myself aside with this, for their sakes, so they'll understand what it means to be sanctified and to set apart. So that the world may know that you have sent me. A world is not going to be drawn to a defeated church, therefore it must be protected. It's not going to be drawn to a divided church, therefore it must be one. It's not going to be drawn to a joyless church. And it's not going to be drawn to a corrupt church. A part of our failure to impress the world with our Christianity is our lack of going to the cross kind of dedication to God and to what He's called us to be and to do. Ron Dunn's podcast is available only for personal edification, not to be duplicated, uploaded to the web, or resold without prior written consent. It is managed and operated by Sherwood Baptist Church. For more Ron Dunn materials, sermon outlines, devotions, and scanned pages from his study Bible, please visit rondunn.com.